Okay, today, because I am kind of ending this series that I've been doing on the Ten Commandments, I thought I would end just relating that, at least ending on the primary focus of uh, gospel-oriented evangelism. Because we do have to give people the gospel, we just don't give them the law. And uh, the law will convict them of sin, but we can't leave them there, right? We have to take them to the next place and to the message of salvation. So I just want to look at one verse. We're going to look at many verses, but I just want to read one verse this morning, and that's going to be uh, from Luke chapter 4. In verse number 18, just one verse, Luke 4, 18. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is the one speaking here. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, this morning, as we look at your word, Lord, as we relish in the thought, even singing about the gospel, about the greatness uh, that is connected to it because of who you are and what you have done on behalf of sinners, Lord, it it must humble us to put us in the place that we bow and worship you because we know, Lord, that we could have never accomplished what you actually accomplished on our behalf. And, Lord, for that we are forever grateful and thankful in the way that, Lord, we just want to live our life. We want to live our life to your glory, to your honor. We want to be used by you on this side of eternity uh, to be a representative of an ambassador in your uh, kingdom as we tell people about the truth and light of the gospel that can rescue them from the darkness that they're caught in and the captivity that they're and the slavery, slavery that they're in. And only the gospel can free them. And we thank you, Lord, that it was your job to do that. You came and you accomplished all the Father had given you to do. You were you lived in a, a completely obedient and perfect life. You were that lamb that was going to be slaughtered on the cross, not for anything you, you did, but for everything we did. And Lord, we thank you that you accomplished that mission. You fulfilled all the shadows and types and messages of the prophets from the Old Testament and you finish that last sacrifice. So no sacrifice has to be offered again. And Lord, we thank you that you died, you were buried, you rose from the grave, and you ascended into heaven, and you are seated at the right hand of the Father, and you will be coming back again. And Lord, that's what we're waiting for. So until we see your face, Lord, let us be working and serving in your kingdom. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So this morning, as I, I look at the Word of God, the primary focus of the gospel-oriented evangelism is really I'm, I'm going to contrast it against the modern gospel. The primary focus when Jesus was talking with the rich young ruler was not his need to be saved, but his lack of understanding of the character of God in order to be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with God and his glory. It does not begin with men or man. It begins with God. It tells people that they have offended a holy God who will by no means pass by sin, cannot do that. Then it reminds the sinner that the only hope of salvation is to be found in the grace and power of this same God in whom they offended with their sin. Most evangelism, and evangelism basically means to take the gospel to other people. That's what it means to do, take the truth of salvation to those who haven't heard it yet. Most evangelism rushes to blaze a trail to heaven while ignoring the implications of the character of God, as if it's not really important for a sinner to have a clear apprehension of God himself. In other words... Without a biblical knowledge of God, how could anyone be saved? They can't be. A sinner cannot know whom he or she has offended, nor the God who threatens them with destruction and condemnation because of their sins, or who is able to save them. So you see, people hope they will have eternal life someday in a good place, but the fact of the matter is, no one is ready to hear about the way of salvation until they behold the glory of God and the holiness of, of God in Scripture. See, people are usually ready to talk about religion. You can go anywhere to talk about religion, politics. They're willing to talk. However, religion is, is a very subjective topic. Religion belongs really in the category of sociology and anthropology, not necessarily in the category of theology, unless it's divine by Scripture itself. Religion is, by definition, the observation of how different people groups who reside in different places in the world have formulated their understanding of something or someone that is beyond themselves, that is in the spiritual world. They formulate their understanding of the spiritual world from the darkness of their own hearts within the confines of the dominion of the prince of darkness, which is Satan, where the scriptures inform us of the mission of Satan in this world. And what is his mission? Well, his mission is this, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, Satan will accommodate anyone or any group in formulating a religious system that may come to their mind at any time, and, of course, that may 
develop in it within also within a culture or within a people group. See, Satan's main goal is to keep people confused and in despair, to keep them thinking that they are on the right path of heaven, heading to heaven, of course, and they have some kind of spiritual wisdom and insight on how to get there. Nonetheless, Satan's main mission is to keep people in the dark concerning theology, concerning who God is and what God has done, to keep people blinded, that last section in this passage, to the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what I'm saying is unless a person is acquainted with who God is in his threefold holiness, whom is alone good, and who is unapproachable in his brilliant holiness, they cannot know themselves as they really truly are a sinner unless they know how God sees it. See, for example, the prophet Isaiah beheld God high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6 in his holiness, and only then, when he saw God high and lifted up, did he see himself and whom he what he really was. He was a sinner and a creature in rebellion against an infinitely holy and a pure God. He saw himself a sinner. He saw himself unclean. He saw himself under judgment. This knowledge of God's holiness was really important to bring about a proper fear of God in his own soul where he cried out in, the, in this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, until he saw that, he was just going along with the culture. He was going along with the, on the level of the people. He was not going along or living his life as the Lord intended, as a holy prophet of God. In the concept of the average American, there's no idea that God is holy. Very many people think, they think of God as having only one attribute, and that attribute is love. Though that is part of the truth. When it is taken as the whole truth, it becomes actually a lie. Most Americans are totally ignorant about who God really is in his character. If they think of God at all, they think in these terms that God loves me and would never harm me, that God loves me with a forgiving and a merciful kindness. So they end up with a kind of perverted concept that God is actually a gushy, all-embracing God of kindness towards them in all circumstances. Or they, on the other side, they may think of God as a cold, distant uh, person that ultimately is unknowable. And, of course, on top of that, the modern gospel adds to the confusion. The modern gospel is often offered as, if you want a better life, come to Jesus. 
that God has some wonderful plan for your life. If you are really serious, Ray Comfort said, about making your life better, then try God. He says that in his book, as opposed to the modern gospel. It might sound admirable, even biblical, to imply to sinners that Christianity promises to solve their problems and make their life better, but it's just not true. If the modern gospel is contrasted to church history and the Bible itself, one must conclude that it is simply not honest. If non-Christians respond to the gospel message only to improve their lives, that Jesus provides happiness and solves problems, that is, Jesus is offered as the answer to their alcoholism or drug problem or marriage issues or personal issues or sexual issues or financial problems, and he can fill that void that is in your life. This is the modern approach to the gospel, but it is just simply not truthful. It's not truthful to the revealed truth of Scripture, nor is it truthful to reality. And sadly, it often leads to false conversions. I didn't get rich. I thought I would. I came to Jesus to be healed, and I wasn't. I came to Jesus to have a better life, and I don't. So I guess it's not all true. See, that's the conclusion that happens. But you know what? The Bible never promises any of those things. The gospel never promises that. If a person does not repent of their sin because they haven't been told to, they will have a false conversion. They will not become new creatures in Christ. It's that parable of the sower that teaches that when some trouble comes, after one receives, or let's see, here's the message of the gospel, if it was received without understanding... Persecution then would come and then reveal the genuineness of that person's understanding. Like the passage here in Mark chapter 4, verse 16 to 19, it says this, In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. Now the seed is the word of God, and the rocky places would be the human heart who when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only only temporary. Then when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So that persecution revealed how they really received the gospel. Verse 18, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, another heart described in Scripture. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So so nothing is wrong with the message. What is wrong is the sinful heart. The sinful heart does not receive the truth of the Word of God, unless God is working on that heart. So what is the Bible message? The Bible message always has a cost to it. There's a cost to being a Christian. There's a cost 
to following Christ. Jesus has always warned that following him, you may end up giving up your life for his namesake. That was his message. And that is still his message today to his disciples. In Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 21, this is what he said. He says, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And then he says this in verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. See, Jesus was always upfront about the cost of following Jesus. Now, of course, the conclusion would be this. I'm not signing up for that. I want my life to be better. See, if if the gospel is presented that way, then that will be the conclusion in the person's mind. But that's not the offer of the gospel, the offer of the gospel. Jesus says, remember this in John 15 in verse number 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, speaking to his disciples and those who would follow him. And then, of course, in John chapter 16, it says, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And then take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This is an incredible passage of Scripture. These are the people who followed God in faith, holding on to the promises that they did not yet see with their eyes, but trusting in the very character of God that God would actually fulfill those promises one day. And look at how their lives went. In Hebrews 11, verse 35, It says this, it says women received back their dead by resurrection, that's a good thing, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, Hebrews 11 verse 36, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They were, went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflict, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Now, brethren, no one would want to sign up for that. But that's how the Lord presented himself to people. Even in the book of Acts, which is a historical book about the growth and expansion of the church, while the gospel is of, of Jesus Christ is being preached, you will not find in the book of Acts Christ's disciples telling sinners either that God loved them or that he had a wonderful plan for their life. You won't find it. When Saul of Tarsus, of course, was, became the Apostle Paul, was persecuted, who was persecuting the church, was converted to Christ, he was told at the start of his ministry what would be in store for him. 
it says in Acts 9, it says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel, an instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he will suffer for my namesake. He let Paul know, listen, Paul, listen, when you set out on this journey, it is not going to be easy. You're going to be stoned. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to get shipwrecked. You're going to be floating in the, on, in the ocean for long periods of time. You're going to be hungry sometimes. You're going to be an outcast. You're going to be forsaken by family and friends. You're going to be all those things. See, but when God saves a person, there's something greater beyond all those things. It's the offer of God himself to the sinner, and the Spirit of God makes that clear and known to them, and they're willing, by God's grace, that if need be, that I have to suffer for Christ, I will. If need be, if God doesn't choose everyone to do that, would bring you to the place that you give up your life, you would do it by God's grace. He doesn't call everybody to do that. He doesn't even call everybody to suffer in these ways. Some, are, some of our suffering is not to the extent as other people. And of course, in Acts 14, it says, strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Stephen was stoned to death for preaching and faith in Christ. James told the brethren in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We go to church history. Church tradition tells us the fate of several apostles and early evangelists. They suffered unspeakable torture and death for the cause of Christ. We see Philip crucified in Pergia, Matthew beheaded in Ethiopia, Barnabas burned to death in Cyprus, Mark dragged to death in Alexandria, James the less clubbed to death in Jerusalem, 66 AD. Paul, of course, we know clearly from Scripture, was beheaded in Rome. Peter was crucified, some historians say upside down for his Lord and A.D. 69, Andrew was also crucified in Achaia. Thomas was speared to death. Luke hanged in Athens. And John, the Apostle John, was banished to a prisoner's island. And some historians say that he, was en- he ended up boiling to death in oil. I'm painting a grim picture. John Huss was a Catholic priest about 100 years before Martin Luther. In 1413, John Huss was summoned to appear before the Roman Church Council in Constance because he was teaching the Word of God to his people in his parish, probably justification by faith alone. When he was thrown into prison for 19 months awaiting trial for his faith, He thought he was going to have a chance to defend himself, but he got a sentence of death with no explanation. He no doubt knew that God would work all things out for the good, and when he was burned alive at the stake, 
His charred, lifeless body fell among the ashes. This did not seem that God had a wonderful plan for his life, but he did. He did. Because if it wasn't for John Huss, there would be no Martin Luther. If there was no Huss, no Luther, no Reformation, where the gospel would be resurrected again for the church. See, so God used all that for the good. And believe me, Huss is in a better place. So is Luther, and so will you and I be, no matter what our life will be like. So modern-day martyrs for their faith, you don't realize this, but according to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, they did research on how many martyrs there are in modern day, yearly, annually. They discovered in their research a worldwide average of 171,000 Christians are annually martyred for their faith. How does that not get to the papers? How can we never hear about those things? How come? I'll tell you one thing, Satan doesn't want people to know those things. Neither does the media care about those things. These are unworthy people, not even worthy of the news. So here's the bottom line. The promise of the gospel has never been one of an enhanced life on earth. This is the conclusion of Ray Comfort in his book, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. During our brief sojourn here, he says, we are to forsake all that we have, deny ourselves, take up the cross daily. We will be hated for his namesake. And if we live godly, a godly life, we shall suffer persecution. Well, that comes right from 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution at some level or another. So instead of telling people that Jesus wants to provide them with happiness and to solve their problems, they must be given the message of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. They must be given the understanding of a command by God to repent and to flee from the wrath to come. The gospel is a promise of righteousness and not a promise of happiness. The gospel is not for people who are broken with ruined lives. It is, but the gospel is also for people who, are, who have good lives, who everything is going well in their life, right? I considered myself in this category. When I heard the gospel for the third time, I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for, for a gospel. I thought I was good. I thought I, was, I went to church. I did the things I thought I had to do. But the third time I heard the gospel, I realized something. I heard how God saw me. I heard from the word of God that I was a sinner under God's judgment. I never looked at it like that. I never saw it like that. So I was in that category. So in other words, the gospel is for everyone, whether your life is going horrible or whether you have a pretty good life. It's for everyone. And sometimes I think the gospel is harder to take to those who have everything going well for them. Right? They don't say anything wrong. But you know what? God has a way of getting in there to your heart with the gospel, no matter where you're at 
and showing you how to be saved. So when Jesus speaks to us in Scripture in spiritual terms, because we live within a such a heavily psychologized and therapeutic culture where, where people place a high value on feeling good, on self-esteem, on self-actualization, and people tend to interpret Jesus' words in, most of the time, a merely physical sense. When Scripture is speaking in a spiritual sense, often people view it through the lens of experience, the lens of their own way of looking at life and things, or the lens of culture like the passage that I read in the beginning. If you, again, notice this passage, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah 61, actually, verse 1 and 2. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, highlight it, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, people immediately, after reading that passage, say, look, Jesus came to the oppressed, to the downtrodden, to the brokenhearted, to the poor in the world. They are thinking in terms of just simply life circumstances, whether in poverty or disease or, or family malfunction or addictions or oppression of different people groups or people themselves oppressing each other. The problem with this interpretation is that it would severely limit who the gospel is for. See, Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. By this, Jesus communicates what he came to do and who the gospel is actually for. Well, who's the gospel for? Well, the gospel is for the poor. What does he mean by that? He means the poor in spirit. Those people who realize that they're destitute of righteousness. It's for the brokenhearted, meaning those sorrowing over their sin, convicted over sin, guilt-ridden over sin, and in their corruption. The captives, who are they? Meaning those captive by the devil to do his will. 2 Timothy 2.26, and they, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And to the blind, who are the blind? Those blinded by the true gospel that will give them spiritual sight. And who blinds them? I read the first passage. In who case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And then the oppressed are those who are oppressed by the devil. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So in other words, Jesus came to preach the good news of God's forgiveness to those who recognize their poverty and are broken by the realization that they have sinned against the just and the holy God, which brings eternal implications. So Jesus preached the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. 
found in the Gospel of Matthew in verse number 2 and 3. And it would be good for you just to turn over there to see. I won't, I'm not going to go through all the, all, all the Beatitudes, but all the Beatitudes end the same way. The Lord is speaking in spiritual terms. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus came to earth to share the very nature of God, which is characterized by true righteousness. Therefore, Christ's message at every point will stack violently against current teaching of any age. The Sermon on the Mount actually clarifies the reason for the curse and shows that man has no righteousness that can survive the scrutiny of God. It is clear in the Sermon on the Mount that blessing, it says blessed are the poor, blessing cannot be achieved by any man, any person, no matter how self-righteous and religious he or she appears to be. In the sermon, Jesus is concerned with the, in, with the internal. He's not concerned with the external. He is concerned with the spiritual and the moral, not the physical and the political. And that's what you have going on in the Gospel of Matthew. There's all kinds of groups. You have the Pharisees that believe that right religion consists of divine laws and religious traditions. You have another group called the Sadducees. Uh, they're the religious liberals, modified. They believe in modified tradition, and, the, and they move the scripture to fit their own needs. And then you have the Essenes. They're the separatists. They believe that right religion meant separation from the rest of society and the world. You have the zealots, the activists. They believe in uh, the right, that right religion centered in radical political activism. So each of those groups, we find all those groups uh, evident and presented today in our world. The central, though, the central focus of the Sermon on the Mount is true religion is God's, in God's kingdom is not a question of ritual or philosophy or location or military might, but of right standing before God, which proceeds from God and starts from conviction of sin within the human heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when the word blessed comes up here in Scripture, it means fundamentally to be approved, to find approval. So when, when God blesses a person, he is approving that person. And who does he approve? He approves those who are poor in spirit. That is, someone who is blessed is a privileged recipient of divine favor. That if God does the blessing, and he and to be blessed means to be approved, then there is no higher blessing on this side of eternity than God forgot to say to somebody, you are blessed. And so who's blessed? Somebody who's poor in spirit, who's broken over their sin who realizes their destitution, who realizes they cannot save themselves, that they need someone else to save them. That's the person who is blessed. Now, some have 
translated the word blessed as happy. There's a possibility that could fit. The only problem is the word is it has much worldly baggage with it. Human happiness is dependent on on really ch- uh, chances and and changes of life. Something life may give and something life may take away. So this for sure sure is what it, it doesn't mean. But but did you did you actually know that most religious systems offer the true way to happiness? The Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that they have the answer to happiness. They say, through a study of the Bible, you can find true happiness despite your problems. That was found in the Watchtower magazine in 2006. Buddhism claims to be the path to true happiness. The basic Buddhist guide provides a code of practice or way of life that leads to true happiness. These are all quotes from their literature. Hinduism teaches that by dwelling on the name of God, whatever God that is, one can only or obtain true happiness. Realization of God is the key and unlocks the doors of unending happiness, eternal peace of mind, and unimaginable bliss. Islam believes if anyone practices some basic facts and principles, he or she may attain peace of mind and comfort. But Jesus is saying here, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what, it, what it, is it to have poverty of spirit? Is it material poverty? Is it financial destitution? Is it poverty of spiritual awareness? Is it poverty of courage? Is it poor whatever? Is it poverty of, of, what God, of the Holy Spirit? What, what kind of poverty is it? Well, actually the word poor is an Old Testament term. Um, it, it really has to do with the poor of the Lord. And many passages of Scripture use, uses that term, like Proverbs 16, 19. It says, it is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than divide the spoil with the proud. And then a passage like uh, Isaiah 57, verse 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So these two words, humble, lowly, contrite, poor, lowly, are all words that the Jews use in a very special way to mean this. Poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy in which God has to do something about. It is the conscious confession of unworthiness before God as such really is that really the deepest form of repentance if a person sees themselves in this way because they're seeing themselves as God sees them. And once you see yourself as God sees you, then that's when you're ready for the rest of the gospel. So a confession that a person is a sinner and in rebellion against God and without moral virtues adequate to commend themselves to God, then we would 
conclude that poverty of spirit becomes the general confession of man's need for God. So a translation of this this passage in the Sermon on the Mount would be this. Blessed is the man who realizes his own utter helplessness before God and is his need for him to put his whole trust in God. That's what it would mean. And of course, that's the important part of it because that person has something that is given to them. Well, what's given to them? It says theirs is the kingdom of God, of heaven. The kingdom of God is the personal possession of the poor in spirit, because only those who realize their own utter helplessness without God actually enter. Where the character of the kingdom of heaven is humility, when Jesus said this, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this first beatitude asks us, to realize our own weakness, to realize our own ability to make ourselves right with God. That is the person who is blessed because that is the person who's ready. They're ready in their heart to receive the gospel. And that's where God brings all of us. It's really a disastrous, it's disastrous thinking that when a person is talking about God, that they all mean the same thing and are speaking about the same God. When sinners speak of God, they usually refer to one who has committed himself to honoring the sovereign will of man at any cost. When the Bible speaks of God, it means the one who is sovereign in creation, in providence, and in the redemption of lost sinners, the one who has unflinching holiness, unchanging holiness, who will, as Exodus 34, 7, will by no means clear the guilty. Sinners frequently think of God as flexible so that he will by no, man, by no means punish good and wonderful people. Well, We cannot make the dreadful miscalculation that sinners know who God is. They simply don't. And the sad truth is that in our age, our age knows less, even though we are privy to all kinds of information, we know less about him than even in the beginning days, even Isaiah had. We know more about God than Isaiah did. And yet, you're so bankrupt when it comes to understanding who the biblical God is, who the God of creation is. See, in other words, you you have to present that. Somebody has to know that before they can even hear the rest of the gospel. Now, that brings me to this point in my message. And it's this, that... There, God does have a, the Bible presents God, first of all, as he, he's a God who has a character about him. So being a Christian 
is more than identifying yourself with a particular religion or affirming a certain value system. Being a Christian means that you have embraced what the Bible says about God. Being someone who's ready to become a Christian, this is where you go, where the Spirit of God will take a person first, because if you check out the revelation God has given about himself in Scripture, you will see that's the case. Well, we're, we see, first of all, that God is a holy God. He, we also see that God is a holy creator. Contemporary thinking says that man is the product of evolution, but the Bible says that we were created by a personal God to love, to serve, to enjoy endless fellowship with him. The New Testament reveals that it was Jesus himself who created everything. In John chapter 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 16 says, For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He also owns all things. In Psalm 103, verse number 19, the word of God says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his sovereignty rules over all. And that means that he has authority over our lives. He has authority over the life of every human being. We owe him, human beings owe God, absolute allegiance, obedience, and worship. That's what we owe him. And then, of course, God is a God who is holy and righteous. God is morally perfect and pure, set apart from all things. Habakkuk tells us, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. It was one man who wrote a book on the character of God, and he said this, because God is holy, he hates all sin. That God hates sin with an absolute hatred, therefore he must punish all sin. Every sin constitutes open rebellion against God's authority and therefore is an abomination to him. So we have to conclude, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. We have to conclude, first of all, that God is angry. That's part of his character. He is angry. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. It says here, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God hates all who commit iniquity. All of them. See, that means that those who do wickedness, God hates sin. 
at the inner core of a person's heart. Some people say, well, God hates the sin but loves the person. But R.C. Sproul once said, well, God sends the person to hell, not the sin. Actually, he sends both. See, love is a characteristic of God most people are familiar with. And if you say to a rebel sinner, by the way, all are rebel sinners, including you and I, that God loves you, the thought that comes to their mind is God loves me and would never harm me, and they often conclude that all is well with my soul. Walter Chantry said, sinners frequently think of God, that God is flexible, so he will by no means punish wonderful people. But if they conclude this without the rest of the information, they would be believing a lie. Because this, because of this, there is an absence of the proper view of God. Some think that God is so full of love that he overlooks all sin. Some conclude that because there is little evidence of divine judgment on sin and evildoers, they presume that he doesn't even exist. They come up with things about God according to their own way of thinking, and they don't check the revelation that the Lord gave concerning himself found in the infallible, inerrant word of God. You see, when part of a truth is taken for the whole truth, it becomes a lie. And that's Satan's greatest craft, is taking the truth, giving a little twist to it, and get people to say, that sounds truthful, and it actually is a lie because they're not examining that particular truth with actual truth that can expose the twist. So you see when, and of course that's Satan's greatest deception. Wrath is not a characteristic of God most people are familiar with. So we must make them aware of it. We must tell them that God is angry with them. And the sword of his wrath already hangs over their guilty heads. And unless they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them from God's wrath, if not, they will forever experience the wrath of God in eternal torment. That's a hard message. That is not a message easily received by the human nature or by the world and its system and its philosophies. And it's surely one that Satan doesn't want people to hear. So, of course, you're going to receive opposition when it goes out. Everything comes out of the woodwork when the gospel starts getting preached. You can talk about God and politics and religion all you want. Talk about Jesus Christ and what he did, and you got a problem, right? I remember one day I was, I was giving the gospel to someone in their home, and I was right at the point where I went through the whole gospel. The person was trekking with me. I said, this is a great opportunity. Uh, and it looked like the person was going to believe in Jesus. And then right outside the window, somebody was fixing a minibike, and the cable of the throttle broke, and it, the motor went, and I could not, he could not hear a thing I said. And, of course, that distracted him, and he went outside, and that was the end of that. I says, how convenient that, is that spiritual, or is, is that a coincidence? You know, I had to ask myself that, and I concluded that that was not a coincidence. 
That was the old enemy up to his old tricks to keep the gospel message from that person. You know what? I never saw that person again. I never had contact with that person again. I was like, Ugh! But you know what? The Lord doesn't lose anything. Or you, if you have a chance to give it, the Spirit of God uses everything. You give somebody if you're faithful to be a witness. We can't save them, but God can, and he will. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. The Bible says if you're going to reject this message, then that rejection doesn't just end it. It's, the end, it's not the end of the conversation. It is you continue under this terrifying expectation of judgment that will ultimately, that's why it ends, that passage ends with this. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's terrifying. See, I think it's good for the Christian to realize these things because it, it kind of puts a fire under us to, to realize that this message is serious. It must be given. It must go out. Arthur Pink wrote, The wrath of God is his eternal de detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he has passed upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is a rebellion against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. That's what it is course once we get to that place then we have to go to the next place sin if god came to save us from uh, up from our sins then how important it would be for us to understand what sin is and how god himself views it and now let me remind you that sin is not merely doing something that is wrong that is what we tend to do we recognize certain acts as good and others as bad. We tend to think that sin is just doing particular things that are bad. It is that, but it is not its essence. The essence of sin is rebellion against God. You see, people tend to think that because they have never committed adultery or never gotten drunk or took drugs or never committed murder and so on, that they are not sinners. People conclude that decent, moral, good living people are not sinners because in their estimation they don't do anything wrong. The only reason most people think that is because they never understood the essence of sin. Which again, there's the character of God. Rebellion against God's standard. Of, against how God has presented things on how to be made right with him. So according to the Bible, 
From birth, we reject God and disobey him. Everyone is guilty of sin. This is because the standard is not human. The standard is divine. Now, this obviously does not mean that we are incapable of performing acts of kindness. We are, and we do. But compared to others, if we compare ourselves to others, we may look kind, we may look good, we may look charitable, we may look better than anybody else, but if we compare ourselves to someone who's perfectly kind and good all the time, then we fall short of that mark. And who is that person? That's God. Because the only way you and I will get to heaven is if we're perfect. Of course, yes, we can't make ourselves perfect, but God gives us his perfect righteousness, puts it on our account so we can enter into his presence where sin is washed away, where our sins nailed to the cross, his righteousness is put on our account. So it began with Satan. For if God, the Bible says, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, well, what is he going to do with those who rebel against him? Also, it began with Adam. Romans 12 5.12, 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered in the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then there is a human responsibility. Because we're sinners, it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all missed God's standard, and we fall short of that standard. And we fall short of that standard every time, all the time. So sin is anything that doesn't please God, anything that breaks God's law. God examines the heart, which includes our thoughts, our words, our deeds. And if you had never sinned, you and I would have never needed or would have required a Savior. There would have never been a name called Jesus, known on earth, if we hadn't sinned. But we all sinned. And the reality of the situation is we are guilty as sinners and justly condemned under those sins. So, in other words, a biblical biblical gospel strategy includes telling people of the character of God, telling people of the matter of sin, but also telling people how to get saved. Telling people, listen, you must be saved. See, that's, that's the good part of the gospel. And, of course, that's where the love of the gospel comes in. That's where telling people and showing people how God loved them, right? God's salvation, that people need Jesus to save them from their sin. And it's just condemnation. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So this is what is meant by lost. It means that If you don't know how to get to your destination, you know what you are? You're lost. And what's the destination? Heaven. How do you get there? I don't know. Did God leave us a a road map? Do we have a GPS to heaven? No, we can't put that into our GPS to get to heaven. But that is the place you want to end up. 
You want to end up there. And so, in other words, we see ourselves as lost. The Bible teaches that we are totally helpless, dead in sin, unable to do anything to gain favor with God. So you may ask, and somebody may ask, well, where does the love of God come in? It comes in right here. As soon as you communicate the true nature of God, leading to the message of the cross, that, that is where the love of God comes in. But notice how the Bible actually says it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, a very familiar passage of Scripture to anybody who's been a Christian for any time. It is at the cross of Jesus Christ that God demonstrates his great love towards lost sinners. And, and this is, I think, very particular for you and I when we share the gospel, is that we are telling people, we are getting to the place where we are telling, we want to tell people that God loves them, but we don't want to tell them right away. We want to tell them once they are established in those truths and the Spirit of God brings them to the place where now we point to the cross and that is, that is see, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, what does it say? For while you were still sinners, still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one would hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God, here it is, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's what we do. That's when we tell them that, listen, how does God love you? Well, look at the cross. He died in the place of sinners. If you're a sinner, that's where his love is demonstrated. It's demonstrated to you. So you and I need a savior. That's the passage. It's in the cross. It's where the debt is paid. It's where everything was done that needs to be done. Now you need to come and do the next thing. So this is what happens. The second person of the Trinity comes to earth. He is righteous. Wrath and sin are our problems. But what happens is, is he takes those things, he dies on the cross in an our place, he becomes our substitute. What he does, he gets buried. He goes to the grave, and then we see that the next thing happens. He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So it is at the cross of Jesus Christ that God demonstrates his great love towards lost sinners. That's what he does. And, of course, that would lead me to the last thing, and it would be this. Belief. Because you have to tell them that a gospel-orientated strategy includes showing the cross as God's demonstration of love, and then you have to bring them to their response. Belief. Believe. Right? Believing is going to remove that separation between you and God. And then, of course, that is going to bring you together, believing the gospel meant to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is God's 
own way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross, that God put all our sin on him and punished them in him. Now, one thing about that is that if a person knows those facts and never does anything with them, that's just religion. A lot of people know. I knew those facts. I knew all those facts. I would agree with all of them. And I was religious, but I wasn't saved. I was religious, like they say, but lost. That's what, that's what I was. So, see, you have to ask, do you believe this? Salvation must not only be granted, it must be received. Have you received the free offer of the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? The gospel, the gospel is actually an act of obedience. I'm obeying the God who's sovereign over me and believing how I can be right with him and be saved. I'm obeying the message. So at that point, we often have to pray the Holy Spirit will whisper in that sinner's heart that that person would yield for yield and invite Jesus to come and save them. To repent of their unbelief. To ask Jesus to rescue them from sin's condemnation. To receive Jesus as their own Lord and personal Savior. And then, of course, to, to somehow say to them, stop the foolish labor of trying to establish your own righteousness. It can't happen. Stop trying to offer a price to earn eternal life by your, your good deeds. Stop leaning upon your pride Give it up. Fling yourself upon the mercy of God and his pardoning grace upon the resurrected and living Christ who wants to give eternal life freely to you without cost. So that's the message. You bring them to the place where they repent of their sin and they trust in Jesus Christ alone. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is that conscious recognition that you are a sinner and that you are turning to a Savior who can forgive your sins, make you right with God, and reconcile you to him. And then, of course, that would include believing in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That true saving faith always responds with obedience, always. That's, that's how you know it's real. It's not just a quick and thing, oh, yeah, I believe, you know, and your life never changes, but you receive the free gift of eternal life offered by Jesus Christ the way God offered it. And so you learn about who God is, about sin, about salvation, and about belief, your response. So, so today, can you who sit here today be enthusiastic and say yes to the fact that you came to believe in Jesus Christ and that blessedly affects your situation right now, that you still desire in your present life to follow him and serve him. You understand the gospel today clearer than you ever did before. You understand the implications of it. 
In other words, do you have a full certainty of your salvation? That if you were to die today, you walk out those doors, go down the block, and boom, it's all over. If you were to die today, and there's a million ways to die. Many people die healthy. If you were to die today, you are certain in your heart that you are going to, into the presence of God based on everything God did and nothing you did. And you're sure about it. You're trusting that. You had that by faith, that promise of eternal life by faith. You're sure of it. That's a good place to be. If you're in that place, blessed are you because you are poor, you are poor in spirit. You recognized what God wanted you to recognize. So you're blessed. You're near. God's near to you for blessing. Not only the day you trust, but every day. He's near to you for blessing. And then secondly, uh, underneath that, is there's the warning. If you flee from the message, if you run from it, if you say, well, I'll, I'll pick it up another day, there may never be another day. Now is the acceptable time of salvation. There may never be another day. You may not wake up. I may not wake up tomorrow morning. I think God's not done with you yet, nor me. But that's the fact, isn't it? It's a, it's a horrible fact in some ways. But it is a fact. But if you're a believer, it's a much more of a blessed fact that I know where I'm going, that this life is, is not just the end. I don't get buried like an animal and decay in the ground. That's it. No, you have an eternal soul, I have an eternal soul. We're going to, into the presence of God. But see, the, the warning and, and the caution is this. The caution is unbelief. A person, if they stay in their unbelief, what, what is their condition? Maybe they heard the whole message. They heard the whole gospel, maybe three, four, five times. They heard it from family members. You have people in your family. I have people in my family who heard it. Many times. And yet, it's like talking to them. Well, of course, I know God has to open up the heart and save them, but I want them to be saved. Don't you want your relatives to be saved, your families to be saved, your neighbors? I do. I want them to be saved. I don't care what they've done or what they said. I want them to be saved because I understand the implications. And what is the implication? The implication is this. In John 3.36, and I'm ending with this. I'm done after this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. It's a matter of obedience, salvation. But the wrath of God abides on him. So in other words, their condition has never changed. From the beginning of the conversation or the many conversations till the end, they're still under the wrath of God. See, that's, that's the horrible part of it. So we need to pray that God rescues people. We want to be the mouthpiece. We want to be the person used by God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the many passages of Scripture that make clear to us what the true gospel is. And Lord, I pray that in our daily life that you would make us witnesses. You would give us an understanding in our mind how to lay out the gospel to give it to people. Lord, we want you to use us. We want to be able to give an answer of the hope that lies within us without, uh, without fear and, and with reverence uh, to those that we meet, uh, to your name and to them, 
and honor, and I pray, Lord, that you would do that. And I just ask you, Lord, that we would never be tired of hearing the message of the gospel and that we would never be tired of telling it to someone else because it is the most important message. And the only one who is preaching this message is the church of Jesus Christ, the true believers who understand from the word of God what it means to be right with you. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't shut up, we wouldn't back off, Take the fear away, Lord, that we'll be able to speak. And Lord, make our thoughts clear as we lay out the gospel to them to use the word of God. That Holy Spirit, you may take it and convict them of their sin, of unrighteousness, and of judgment, and bring them to see truly the love that's demonstrated on the cross of Christ, of what Christ did for sinners, and that they may come and repent and believe in you. And then we know all of heaven rejoice. And someone repents and turns from their sin and trusts God for salvation. Thank you, Lord. I pray heaven will rejoice for those who come. In Christ's name, I pray this. Amen.